Hey, everybody. The deadline to get your application in for the spring vintage of Village Global Accelerator is March 1st. Companies that have been through the accelerator have raised from some of the best venture funds in the world, like A16Z, Lux, Spark, Bessemer, Founders Fund, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash accelerator. Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Welcome, everybody, to the first Big Ideas Clubhouse show. I'm, I'm joined today with Catherine Boyle, uh, who, for any of you who don't know, is a, is a general partner at General Catalyst, and, uh, and, and Dan Romero, and, uh, and Mark Andreessen. We have uh, special guests, uh, Nick Carter and, and Lynn Alden. We are waiting for Luke uh, and, 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 and Brent, and we'll give it maybe 30 seconds. Hey, folks. How's everybody doing? D- doing great, uh, Mark. Thanks for, thanks for joining. So, uh, Lynn, I, I want to start off with, with, with you. Uh, you mentioned that a corollary effect of, of having the global reserve currency is that the U.S. has to keep running deficits to supply the world with dollars. And as a result, it hollows out its industrial and manufacturing base and incentivizes mercantilism from, all, uh, from other nations. And, and some, people, some people maybe in this room might push back and say, well, those jobs weren't great in the first place, those manufacturing jobs. And now we can create new jobs. And to say that they won't be there is, is the lump of labor fallacy. So, so perhaps you can give this ba- some background on how this hollowing out occurs and then respond to the counterclaim that maybe it's a good thing. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, th- we've kind of had two phases of being the global reserve currency. And so the first phase was the Bretton Woods system. Uh, and that one did not, uh, having a structural trade deficit. Uh, and instead, the weak point there was that the U.S. generally had to draw down its gold reserves in order to maintain that over time. Uh, and when that started to unravel, uh, because you had a larger and larger amount of dollars overseas that were, that were claimed against gold, and when that no longer became sustainable because you had too many dollars for that gold, uh, that system broke down. And then the second version of that system, uh, you know, it can have a couple different names, but the, the petrodollar system, I think, is the simplest way to describe it, which was that the United States made deals with, uh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia and other nations where they only sell uh, oil uh, in dollars. So if, if France buys oil from Saudi Arabia, they pay for it in dollars, even though it's neither their currency. And so that creates a situation where pretty much all countries in the world need dollars uh, if they want to buy oil. Some of them, uh, you know, go ahead and then sell many of their uh, goods and services in dollars as well. And so that kind of puts the dollar back in the center of the system. Uh, but that means that the entire world needs dollars and there's a ton of demand for dollars. And so what that does is that keeps our uh, you know, dollar pretty strong and keeps our imports uh, quite strong, but it also makes our exports rather uncompetitive. Uh, and so we have the situation where the, the U.S. Uh, trade balance is pretty much forcibly held open for, for decades, uh, which is uh, unusual compared to many of our trading partners that have somewhat more balanced situation. Uh, and many of them have structural trade surpluses because they've, they've been on the other side of this, this uh, equation with the United States. And it kind of incentivizes them to use mercantilist policies to uh, keep their currency moderately weak uh, so that they can continue that, that relationship. Uh, and, you know, who it benefits and who it hurts really comes down to uh, what kind of work you do. And so, for example, uh, people in the United States that worked in 
government, healthcare, technology, uh, finance, they've done pretty well with the system because they got a lot of the benefits from the system without really having a lot of the, the drawbacks of the system. On the other hand, anyone who worked in, in blue collar, uh, many of them had their jobs displaced and other ones, they might still have the job, uh, but they're more held down by, by foreign competition uh, than they otherwise would have been. And that's not just compared to emerging markets, that's even compared to many of our industrial peers like Germany and Japan that have had, you know, this, this problems occurred much more slowly and less severely to their markets because they're not at the center of the system. Uh, and so overall, at least, you know, it leads to pros and cons. Uh, but one of the biggest downsides is that, you know, it's contributed to wealth concentration because it's primarily impacted, uh, you know, certain types of work. And it's also likely contributed to the higher degree of populism uh, that the United States has compared to at least some of our developed uh, nations. And so I'll, I'll turn over uh, to the others from there. And so, so I guess if you were to respond to the, the counterclaim that uh, perhaps, you know, if, if you were to look at this you know, in the reverse way, but you said it, that other countries subsidize their export industries to sell U.S. stuff because, because they need the dollars. What would you say to that? Well, yeah, a lot of them, they, they, they do, uh, you know, they use aggressive uh, policies to keep their currencies from strengthening too much. And one of the examples would be Switzerland, where they print a lot of their currency to buy foreign assets, particularly dollar denominated assets in order to keep their currency from appreciating too much. Uh, and so that, you know, it works well while it works, but then it, it, you know, it leads to, you know, populism in the U.S. And we're also seeing a general problem where, you know, back when the system was created, the United States was something like 35% of global GDP, and we were the largest commodity importer. Uh, and so it was easier for us to supply that, that amount of dollars needed to keep the whole system running. But over time, as, you know, we're, we're something like 5% of the population, over time, our share of global GDP has gone down as we've had more development. And so now, depending on how you measure it, we're between 15 and 25% of global GDP, and we're no longer the biggest commodity importer. Uh, and so we're starting to have uh, countries go around that system. Like, for example, now you have Russia selling uh, oil in euros and, uh, you know, basically other ways to kind of uh, slowly lead towards a more multi-currency energy pricing model. And so pretty much whether or not the U.S. benefits from it, Certainly, we have interests that do benefit from it and certain interests that don't benefit from it. But either way, we're starting to see other countries begin to circumnavigate that issue. And the biggest implication of your thesis, and this is one that, that Luke shares, is that we're going to need to devalue our currency, that, that, that the debt to GDP ratio is so high that you know, in 51 to 52 other scenarios in which the debt to GDP ratio was as high as ours, which I, I don't know if it's 140 percent or 150 percent, they needed to devalue their currency in order to inflate the, the, the debt away. And thus, we are going to have a, a much weaker dollar and that that is uh, inevitability uh, of the system as a result of, of, of having global reserve currency. Uh, is, is that accurate or what would, how would, what would you add it to that? Oh, yeah, that's pretty close. The one thing I would add is that, you know, historically, over the past 200 years, uh, countries that get up to this level of sovereign debt relative to GDP generally have some degree of currency devaluation. And that can be, you know, it can be one of those like spectacular, you know, uh, big events, or it can just be a prolonged period of having negative real yields, meaning that the, the inflation rate, even if it's moderate, is higher than the, you know, the prevailing interest rates, uh, either for the sovereign bonds and, and also for, for bank cash. Uh, the one thing that makes the United States unique in, unique in this sense is that, you know, we're going into this problem with a structural current account deficit, structural trade deficit, whereas many of the other countries that are also going to go through similar problems have structural current account and trade surpluses. And so that, that provides somewhat of a floor to their currency, you know, compared to the dollar, if you were to get this kind of broad, uh, you know, kind of devaluation event. 
and 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 maybe we can get to to Luke here, and this is where I believe Luke and Brent disagree. Where Luke thinks that Luke, if I understand correctly, that it's in the U.S. interest to actually sort of stop being the global reserve currency a- a- after a-, a while because of the of the hollowing out that Lynn mentioned of of our uh, manufacturing and industrial base, whereas Brent disagrees that we will find it in our in our interest. L- Luke, uh, Brent, is, is that an accurate reflection of, of your perspective? I think it's pretty fair re- uh, reflection. Uh, I think if you look at um, things that the Department of Defense has been saying for the better part of a decade. Uh, I think if you look at the realities of the way China is using the dollar system um, against us, the euro dollar system, where right now as a practical matter and, and for the last several years, what happens is China borrows dollars in the euro dollar market. They lend those euro dollars out at a spread to other emerging markets along the Belt and Road. Uh, by doing so, that increases China's economic clout, geopolitical influence, and uh, they lend those dollars out at a spread. So they're, they're getting dollars back in return, which helps their dollar shortage. And they lend those out against hard asset collateral, commodity collateral. And so at some point in the cycle, whenever the dollar gets a little too strong, these weaker emerging markets that have borrowed from China start to uh, get pressured uh, by the mismatch between their currency and, and the dollar borrowings they've borrowed. And one of two things happens. Either they begin to default on the loan uh, to China, in which case China gets the hard asset collateral, which is what they wanted in the first place. Or, as we saw in March of last year, the Fed comes in with swap lines or dollars for everybody but China. Uh, however, by virtue of the fact that China's the creditor of a lot of these places, those dollars end up in China's pocket. And so uh, you end up with uh, China using the euro dollar system to increase their geopolitical clout, their, their economic clout increasingly monopolize the, uh, the, 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 the finite uh, hard assets uh, of the world. Um, and uh, sort of the, the, the cherry on top of this whole Sunday is that the U.S. military protects the trade lanes for China to bring all the stuff. When you look at this euro dollar system and how it mandates the hollowing out of the U.S., not, not just this situation for China, but also the hollowing out of the U.S. manufacturing base, there was a Defense Department report uh, assessing the U.S. supply chain in October of 2018. There was a, a classified and unclassified version. If you read the unclassified version, the, uh, they're very clear that uh, effectively uh, the long-term result of, the, of the, the petrodollar, eurodollar system, the dollar system as structured in the aftermath of 1971 after we went off the gold standard, has been that the U.S., is no longer able to source a lot of critical components uh, needed for operational readiness for the U.S. Defense Department. And that's the angle they took took it from. And we need look no further than the Financial Times article today, noting that China was reportedly threatening uh, rare earth uh, supplies to uh, the U.S. military, noting that you know the F-35, which is I don't know, half a billion dollar jet, uh, needs like 420 kilos of, of rare earths or else it doesn't work. Uh, and so I really think the, there are interests in the United States uh, that now realize that, you know, it was a good thing when it started. There was reason for this system to have started post-71. It helped us win the Cold War, but it's gone too far in the other direction. And it's now led to uh, such a hollowing out of our manufacturing base that it is, it, it's causing uh, more problems than it's, than it's benefiting. So that's, that's how I've shaken out on it. Well, I, I, I would jump in and say, this is Brent, I, I would say that I, I don't really have an issue with the the facts of the case that Lynn has laid out and that Luke has laid out. Um, you know, 
largely what they have just described is Triffin's dilemma, uh, which came was come up with back in the 60s, which said, you know, whoever runs the global reserve currency does have to supply enough currency for the rest of the world. And eventually the needs of the international market will come into conflict with the needs of the domestic market. And I would argue that that's largely, you know, what Lynn and Luke have just described as happening. And I would say that that's going to continue to happen. But what I, where I would counter it is just, I would say that just because the world needs a weaker dollar doesn't mean the world is going to get a weaker dollar. I would also say that for the most part, um, you know, when the, you know, sub in 1971, when we went from the Bretton Woods gold standard to the U.S. dollar petro standard, however you want to describe that, you know, the first 20 years of that were fairly con uh, contentious because of the Cold War. But largely the last 30 years, let's say, have been one of globalization where everybody, for the most part, was cooperating and accepting of the fact that the dollar was the world reserve currency. And so, and everybody accepted the use of the dollar. And I would argue that over the last 10 years and going forward, we are going to, rather than being going towards globalization, it will be fracturing and it will be going back towards nationalization. And I think that cooperation that has allowed the system to function smoothly for either 80 or 30 or 20 years, however you want to describe it, is no longer going to be as smooth and functional as it has been. And I think we will get into a situation where we will find out that money is not just the medium of exchange that is accepted by everybody, but money is also what is demanded by the hegemon. And I think the U.S. will enforce, if, if necessary, and I don't know if it will be necessary, but if necessary, I believe the U.S. will enforce the use of the dollar as the global reserve currency rather than surrender it in order to get some economic gain out of it. It, it seems that you're sort of alluding to this idea of, or intonation that U.S. runs a trade deficit out of weakness. And, and what would you say to the counter that, that maybe it runs a trade deficit out, out of strength, that we print paper, uh, send it overseas, you know, they send us real stuff that, we, that they need us more than, than, than we need them? That, that we make all the actually valuable stuff and it's not worth, you know, putting masks aside for, you know, COVID and that special scenario. It's not worth doing the things that they actually do. And this is just an example of comparative advantage you know, running its course. And, and so why isn't this a manifestation of, of, of U.S. strength, uh, present and, and also future? Why isn't it sustainable? Why, why can't we just print, print our, our, our way away from it and uh, just keep running the, the same system? as designed? I would say because... The system's really akin to, you know, a table where uh, on a deserted island where there's people around the table and, and everybody, you know, one guy cooks, one guy cleans, one woman, uh, you know, uh, catches fish, one, one, one woman makes boats. And, and then, you know, the U.S. is at the end of the table and saying, you all need me because I eat all your production. And at some point they all get together and say, well, we just vote this guy off the island. There's going to be a lot more for all of us. And... That wasn't an issue, uh, to Brent's point, from you know the time the Berlin Wall came down in '89 through probably 2008, maybe maybe 2013, maybe 2012. I don't know. You could date it to a number of different things. However, when you look at objectively, China has whether it's it's commodity purchases, whether it is oil imports, whether it is in in 
In 2000, the United States was by far the largest trading partner the, with the world. Uh, if you look at a map and, and put this on my Twitter feed before as a Financial Times map, it, it, if you look in 2000, uh, the number of nations who had the United States as their biggest trading partner, uh, the entire world was basically, uh, was basically blue. Uh, for the U.S. And in 2019, just 19 years later, that same map, virtually the entire world, with the exception of Mexico and Canada and a couple other nations, was is red. Uh, so in the span of 19 years, uh, the facts on the ground have changed enormously. And uh, the reason I don't think it can continue is because China doesn't want it to continue. And in economics and political economy, wh- whoever pays a piper calls a tune. And they're increasingly calling the tune. Uh, a big part of the reason we're seeing the increased strains between the U.S. and China is because China is calling the tune. It was fine when they were making low value added goods and not competing with us militarily in, in certain areas. And neither of those are true anymore. And so it's from a purely economic standpoint, I don't know that I would disagree that much once you set aside the domestic political issues. Right. So you can say, well, this is a good deal if we print paper, and we get stuff. But if you say that, you can't complain about what happened on January 6th. You can't complain about the election of Trump because that's that's going to happen. That's a natural outcome of, of we print paper and they get stuff. Because what you're really saying is, is we're going to outsource labor. Uh, and so that's a political question domestically. But where I think that really breaks down, again, is uh, internationally, the, uh, the the Chinese don't want that situation to continue. And they have the economic cloud and the military cloud in certain lanes. Uh, to prevent that from happening or to uh, create enough of a problem for our other trade partners uh, and for our for our own defense department, as I alluded to earlier, uh, that it it, it begins the, the real politic of it, the political economy of it begins to uh, make that a problem. Is it possible that, that COVID is, is really um, sort of evolving the narrative on this one and that before COVID, you know, we our economy was great and, and we had, you know, uh, some of the highest wages we, we've had uh, in, in a long time, uh, you know, some of the lowest employment, unemployment we, we've we've had in a long time after the the 20 year stretch you're you're you're, you're talking about. And, and to, to that end, I would ask, what, what are we calling the tune on? And and, and I'd ask another follow up question, which is sort of who who has the leverage here? Uh, you know, if the U.S. has has the military might and, and the energy independence, you know, to your sort of island example, you know, can can you really coordinate uh, and, and, and kick them out? You know, a leverage question, you can look at a number of different ways. I mean, it's on, on one level, China would be uh, just fine continuing to run surpluses against us, taking the dollars and buying up the world's finite assets um, and watching as wealth inequality as the US, in the U.S. continues to skyrocket um, and create domestic political problems. Um, by the way, that helps all of these, these dollar surpluses help uh, us effectively fund China's military um, uh, and military investment and spending. Uh, and so it, it really is, you know, the, the, the leverage, I would say, I guess we probably still have the leverage uh, on net, but with each passing year that we continue with this system, uh, it erodes further and further and further. And uh, what I would say is that pre-COVID, if we would have lost the advantage uh, or the leverage, or it would have come to basically been a 50-50 push, whatever date that was pre-COVID, say that was five years from now, 10 years from now, three years from now, I could I could make an argument. That COVID has brought that date forward enormously based on what has happened 
to the U.S. fiscal situation, because again, we are a twin deficit nation. We are running deficits. And by virtue of what COVID did, it has pulled forward the date where I think our leverage or our initiative is, is, is lost. It has been pulled forward by probably a couple or several years. Lynn, I want to ask you about a, a book that you talked about recently on a podcast called The Fourth Turning. And you have a really interesting theory about how long-term debt cycles line up with historical cycles. And I'd love for you to walk us through this thesis and why specifically you think that the cycles of history line up with this 80-year debt super cycle that we've been in in terms of relating it to the, the end of dollar supremacy. Yeah, sure. So if you look at, um, that, that was a, you know, a book by um, uh, uh, Neil Howe uh, and his co-author. And they basically argued that generally you go on like a four-generational cycle where you have a big transformational change uh, in one generation, and then the next generation, there's some degree of pushback against that. Uh, and then the third generation, uh, you generally have somewhat of a more apathetic view towards the system. And then by the end of it, it starts to kind of break down. And mostly the, the entropy of the institutions start to fall apart. Uh, and it kind of goes into all the social reasons. And, you know, it's not an exact science. It's just a general observation he had as a historian and a demographer. And what I found interesting about that is if you just overlay the points, you know, and the fourth turning uh, is basically the, the 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 turn where in that fourth generation, there's usually some sort of crisis and they end up kind of read, they turn over the system and kind of uh, start a new system. And so, uh, you know, he identifies that you know, he kind of goes back uh, through American history and then also into European history. Uh, and, you know, in the United States, for example, fourth turnings were you know, the 1930s and 40s, the one before that was the Civil War, and the one before that uh, was the Revolutionary War. Uh, and uh, so I, I just noticed that if you looked at uh, U.S. sovereign debt to GDP, uh, they all happen to have these big spikes around fourth earnings, uh, and it's a, it's a pretty reliable pattern. And if you look at the overall ratio of wealth inequality, wealth concentration, I think is a better word, you know, that tends to to peak leading into those crises and then it kind of tends to alleviate uh in the aftermath of those crises as they reconstructure things as you usually have a currency devaluation and things like that and so it really kind of comes to a head uh and it's really not surprising that you know if you line up you know why the system is failing like why is there you know why does that system start out strong and then kind of degrade over time a lot of it's because you have wealth concentration built up in the system you have whatever fault there was in the system, it slowly gets worse and worse and worse. And in the beginning, you have a situation where the benefits outweigh the downsides. Like, for example, we talked about the petrodollar system. There were certainly benefits in the early stages, but then increasingly the cost kind of grew exponentially while the benefits were rather linear. And now you have, for example, China, China using the system against us. Uh, you've had such a degradation in the manufacturing base that it's leading to populism and difficulty you know, sourcing certain components. And so it kind of gets to the logical end of the, the useful lifetime of that system. And the people that are most affected by it then tend to push back and get more and more political power. Uh, it also goes back, you know, I, I point out there's a book called Lessons of History written in the 60s. And they literally go back through like 5,000 years of human history. And they tend to find that every, every you know, handful of generations, you kind of go through the same overall cycle where you have wealth accumulation. And then you have generally some sort of of pushback and some sort of currency devaluation and kind of changing of the guard, you could say. And, you know, nations that handle that poorly often end up in an outright revolution, uh, whereas, you know, nations that can kind of turn the corner more gracefully uh, usually have a, you know, a change to their system, uh, you know, for the better uh, after kind of a, a period of turmoil. 
I'd love to dig in on this question just a little bit more, especially with the others in the room, because I think, you know, as technologists, we often ask the question of what's leading to this kind of broad-based institutional decline. I think it's kind of uniformly understood that institutions are declining, whether it's, you know, whether it's political institutions, whether, you know, whether it's in the U.S. alone or, or looking at other countries. And it seems to be that the, the broader thesis among technologists is that transparency and that, you know, changes in communications and global communications have led to this kind of just gross, you know, d destruction of sort of traditional institutions and the rebuilding of new ones. And, and to use the fork turning as an example, if you're looking at it from sort of an 80 year cycle, um, it makes sense in the U.S. context, but I'm I'm curious if you kind of go back through history. You know, the 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 world wasn't as interconnected as it was in terms of what we're looking at today, and so I I, I think it's really interesting that you're pointing towards monetary policy and towards sort of the interconnectedness of the global economy versus sort of what I think the broader thesis in Silicon Valley is, which is that it has something to do with sort of the interconnectedness of technology. And I'd I'd love to hear if if others think that that's possibly the reason we're seeing this decline in institutional trust. I think it's a really interesting point and something we've written about to our clients has been uh, how effectively or, or, or compared how um, Gutenberg's printing press ended the church's monopoly on information. And once it did so, it led to a number of different uh, revolutionary uh, changes to human interactions, um, you know, the Renaissance, uh, more of a middle class, et cetera, a whole, a whole bunch of different changes. And equated the internet and social media uh, and 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 some of the techno technological, just the more interconnectedness of society uh, to Gutenberg's printing press, where the monopoly on information uh, has been broken in a way that I would argue has never been seen before in history, so that uh, both for good and for 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 bad, uh, we've seen it. So if for the first time ever, you know, Henry Ford once was quoted as saying it's, 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 you know, it's, it's probably all for the best that the American people don't know how the monetary system works, because if they did, there'd be a revolution by morning. Well, people can now get on the internet and they can figure out exactly how the monetary system works. And we're starting to see signs of revolution. Uh, so it, I, I think, you know, the, the flip side of it is we've seen sort of the, you know, the fake news dynamics and some of those types of issues that have gotten a lot more attention, I think. But I, I do think that there is this element, the broader theme that the monopoly on information, the, the, is the status quo institutions monopoly on information has been shattered. And it, it, it's turning it into a, a much more of a meritocratic uh, forum for ideas. And that's, I think, in a vacuum, a good thing, unless you're a status quo institution and your idea was never that good to start with. And then suddenly it's a threat. And so that's, you know, I think how, how I've thought about it in, in terms of tying in the technology to the fourth turning type stuff. Again, I would uh, agree with just about everything that, that Lynn and, and Luke just said. And I would highlight the rise of Bitcoin over the last 10 years as kind of the you know underlying current of the mirror between like technology and um or the rise of technology and the awakening of how the monetary system works et cetera et cetera again and i, I think most of us here i'd be interested to get nick's nick's uh, view on this because i'm i'm familiar with lynn and luke's regarding the fourth turning i'm not sure on nick's view but to me, the rise of Bitcoin goes right along with the fourth turning and being in the fourth turning. And I agree that we're in the fourth turning. 
again, where the disagreement comes is how that fourth turning plays out. I would suggest to everybody that the fourth turning is typically a very dramatic and sometimes unfortunately violent uh, period of time as opposed to a smooth transition to a new system. And I would say that because the whole world needs the dollar to go lower and because the Fed is trying to get the dollar to go lower and because there's this awakening people are starting to understand the problems with fiat currency and you know the public is showing a need for an alternative currency in Bitcoin, that to me shows if that were to happen, if the dollar were to go lower because the world needs it, that is the central banks succeeding. That is them continuing the system that currently exists. That is not the central banks failing. The central banks failing is the dollar going higher and wrecking the monetary system. And this, the central, the fourth turning is the central banks fighting with Bitcoin, not adopting Bitcoin. Now, I don't know who will win that battle, but I am convinced there will be a battle. And I do not think it will be this smooth transition from the current system to the new system. And that's where I largely disagree um, with Luke and Lynn. I'm not sure whether I disagree with, with Nick on this. Well, Brent, I, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that, actually, because some Bitcoiners call Bitcoin fourth-turning money. So the, <laughs> the fourth-turning is quite popular in the Bitcoin community. I'll also shout out uh, Peter Turchin, uh, Ages of Discord, which I think is maybe a slightly more uh, scientific uh, history of sort of inequality and, and uh, cycles of political disintegration and integration, which is influential to me and has many of the same conclusions that effectively, if you try and quantify inequality and political integration, that right now we're at a situation which resembles you know, the 1850s or thereabouts in terms of how pitched our societal divisions are and how bad the inequality picture looks. And I think a lot of people viscerally feel this and they can't necessarily explain it. You know, we've got some of the best macro experts in this room right here. And I've been following, you know, Lynn Luke's and Brent's work and trying to make sense of it myself. And it's been this multi-year journey to try and understand what the interplay is between monetary policy and inequality. And it's incredibly complex. And I think for most folks, they don't have the time or energy to look into that. And so they just intuitively feel that something is deeply, deeply wrong. And they feel that globalization is not working for them. And maybe they have a vague sense of what a Cantillon insider is, and you know, central bank policy enriching people that own financial assets. And they have a vague sense of property prices going up and financial assets going up and feeling that they can't start a career and meaningfully save but they can't really deeply understand the inner workings of the system. So I think it's very plausible that the political violence we've seen in the last kind of 18 months is connected to the rampant inequality in society. But it, so far, it seems like there's a lack of a popular understanding of how exactly this works and the role of the dollar system in this sort of disintegration that we're seeing which is kind of demoralizing because you want to try and explain this to people, but uh, it's virtually impossible. So that's why I'm, I'm actually really grateful for the work 
uh, of Lynn in particular, because uh, she does such a good job uh, laying it out in uh, in clean, simple terms. Well, I, I think one thing that's uh, that's important to also uh, highlight here is, you know, what we've largely talked about for the last, you know, half an hour or so is the dollar, the global reserve currency, and America. Um, or we've also talked about how China, you know, is using it against us, so to speak. What we haven't talked about is the fact that Europe is in trouble as well. We haven't talked about that China has a demographic nightmare on their doorstep. We haven't talked about the fact that Japan is running huge deficits as well and is not in great economic shape and also has a demographic nightmare on their doorstep. And so the point I always like to make to people is you can throw as many stones as you want to at the United States government and the idiocy of our political leaders and the, the stupidity of our fiat monetary system. And I won't argue too much because I tend to agree with most of those arguments. Where I disagree is that we're somehow unique in this because it's not like the central bankers in Europe are these geniuses or the central bankers in Japan are financial geniuses or the central bankers in Brazil are financial geniuses. Everybody's in, for the most part, the same shape. Now you will argue that no other country has the twin deficits, but that's just a function of us being the global reserve currency. Everybody's got budget deficits. And I would also argue that while we do have the twin deficits, we are choosing to have the one that allows us to be the global reserve currency. And if you're gonna have a transition from one system to another, you have to have a new system to go to. You can't just leave the old system and then all of a sudden there's a new system. So there has to, you know, if, you, if, if, if the dollar is going to lose its status, then somebody else has to rise up and take that status. Go back throughout history. Global reserve currencies are never surrendered. They're always taken. Nobody ever gives away power. Power is always taken. And the United States is not going to give away the global reserve currency. If you believe they're going to, you're welcome to that belief. I would just caution you to go back throughout history and try to find another time where that has actually happened. Again, I think it's, I'm very sympathetic to the ideas that the U.S. has mismanaged its resources. We've gotten over our skis, for lack of a better word, and we have a reckoning day coming. And, and I agree with that. We do. But we're not unique in that regard. And I think when this plays out, it's just going to play out in a much different way than many think. And it, I don't necessarily want it to play out the way that I think it's going to play out, but I think there's a difference between what you want to see happen and what's actually going to happen. And I just kind of think that this is going to be a much more difficult fourth turning than many people think it's going to be. And then, Brent, can you unpack why you, you said a couple times the world needs a weaker dollar and why it'd be a loss, you know, the central banks going down uh, you know, means the dollar spike, not 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 the opposite. And, and then I'd like to hear from from Luke and Lynn why, what, what the crux of the disagreement is there? Because you guys agree on the long term. Why? Well, you know, I I don't want to put. I, I, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing is that you know a lot of people hear me say the dollar is going to go higher, and they think that I'm this, you know, American exceptionalist, and you know we're the greatest country in the world, and we're so much smarter and better, and da 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 da. And it, 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 that's not it at all. Again, I, I don't necessarily believe that's the case. I just think that this is the way it's going to play out in the short term. Ultimately, the dollar is going to lose its status. Ultimately, the American empire will come to an end and another hegemon will rise. And, you know, the fourth turning that maybe that happens during the for this fourth turning sometime in the next decade. But I think before that happens, you're going to see a rise 
uh, of the American power rather than just surrendering it. Um, you may, in fact, see America act like the evil empire rather than just the empire. We may tear off the mask of, uh, you know, that the, the shows that we're altruistic in the white knight. We may just put on the black hat and go for it. I, I don't know, but I, I'm just convinced we're not just going to surrender uh, the American hegemony without a fight. And so, you know, I just I think that's important to, 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 to consider when you're analyzing how you're going to allocate assets and how you're going to invest uh, over the next five to 10 years. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a part of it. Luke, maybe you could jump in on, on what is the crux of the disagreement on, on the short term? Why don't you believe the dollar milkshake theory that, you know, it, it will spike before before it drops? Oh, you know what? Let me just make a point real quick before Luke jumps in. You know, because what I should have said is I get the understanding that, you know, the world needs a lower dollar. I think a lot of the political pressures, a lot of the social unrest, a lot of the um, nationalistic feeling, et cetera, et cetera, will, won't make it, will make it more difficult to bail out the euro dollar market than many other people think. I think it's very hard to bail out Bangladesh if people in Bakersfield are unemployed. I think it's very hard to bail out uh, Argentina if people in Atlanta um, are going hungry, et cetera, et cetera. So I, that, I don't think dollars will be supplied in the same amount to the euro dollar market as they will be in the domestic market. And then I'll just leave it at that. So I guess the 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 crux of, of my disagreement as it relates, uh, you know, Eric, like you said, to the uh, to the dollar. I mean, I think in the short run, I don't have a strong sentiment on the dollar either way. Uh, you know, the dollar's fallen a lot over the last nine months. And I think that ties into probably another part of the the uh, the disagreement, which is the Fed has demonstrably done a ton even when the people were unemployed in Atlanta or, or in Bakersfield. Um, the dollar got the 98 or 99 on the Dixie back in March of last year. And uh, we started to see something that we'd never seen before. I'd been in, in finance for 25 years. I'd never seen it before, which was after 12 days, 12 trading days of U.S. stocks trading down sharply, uh, the U.S. Treasury market started started crashing alongside stocks. And so the the long bond fell by close to 15 percent, I think, over nine trading days, eight trading days. And what happened was, is for the first so the, the U.S. has built a system where uh, it's really a, a nifty doomsday machine. So back in 1995, paradoxically, Bill Clinton was trying to uh, reduce wealth inequality. Uh, that was starting to burge in, in, under his administration, and they were implementing tax reforms. And part of that was they made non-deductible to the corporation executive compensation over $1 million of, in cash. So if you were an exec and you got paid a million five a year, the, the, the 500000 was no longer deductible to the corporation. You could, they could only deduct a million of your comp. So obviously, they're trying to reduce executive comp over a million bucks to, to reduce wealth inequality. Okay, so far, so good. They then put in a, an incredible exemption for incentive-based comp. So if you took your comp in stock or in options, then you could get paid as much as you want. Right, and this is in 1995, right in front of the biggest bull market in history up until that point, right in front of the tech bubble. And so guess what everybody did? Everybody executives started taking their comp in this manner. Well, the long and short of this is that you can see that up until 1995, there was a loose to no correlation between U.S. tax receipts and the total equity market cap of the United States 
equity indices. And then beginning in 1995 and getting more pronounced with each passing cycle, the equity indices have actually become a leading indicator of tax receipts, which makes sense because when you look at U.S. federal tax receipts, uh, the top 5% of taxpayers uh, pay 60% of total, uh, or excuse me, of individual taxes, 30% of total tax receipts. And we all know that the top 5% of taxpayers are, are not getting paid on an hourly basis. A big chunk of their comp, if not the majority of it, is coming from incentive stock-based comp, et cetera. In addition, based on the increasing financialization of the U.S. economy that had to take place by virtue of this dollar system, the uh, the the increasing importance of stock got to the point, or stocks and asset prices got to the point where net capital gains plus taxable IRA distributions are now up to two hundred percent of annual growth in personal consumption expenditures, which is about two thirds of GDP. So, uh, what that means is not that that people are necessarily selling out of their uh, their stocks and their IRAs and buying boats and cars and healthcare services and everything that's in PCE. But what it does mean is that it's mathematically impossible for U.S. PCE to rise if stocks fall and stay down. Now, given that PCE is two-thirds of GDP, if PCE is not rising, GDP is probably not rising. And if your debt to GDP is 130%, like the United States is, if your GDP starts falling, you're heading towards a debt death spiral. So they've created this doomsday machine where execs take their stock, uh, their comp, uh, taxpayer uh, in, in stock, and so it's tied to tax receipts. Consumption is tied to stocks. And then finally, as a result of, again, the way the dollar system is structured, we run these deficits. The foreigners are taking their deficits and recycling them into our stocks, our assets. So what has happened, particularly since China joined the WTO in 2001, is if you look at Historically, the net international investment position of the United States in 1998 was about 3%. So when you had a problem overseas, it took a long time for, say, the Asia, uh, Southeast Asian crisis to reverberate to the U.S. economy. Uh, by 2008, the U.S.'s net international investment position was negative 8 or 10% of GDP. Since 2008, it's gone from negative 8 to 10% to negative 60%, negative 60 to 65% of GDP. So we haven't had so much a recovery as we've hocked our family silver, our assets to China and other foreigners, basically as a way of paying for our recovery, again, under the auspices of this dollar system. What this all means is that as soon as stocks start to fall, it's pro-cyclical. The foreigners need dollars. They sell stocks. Mom and pop needs stocks to pay for consumption. They sell stocks. Uh, the tax receipts needed to pay for all of the entire U.S. economy is pro-cyclically structured in favor of stocks. And so all, I bring all this up by way of background to, to refute Brent's point or the contrary to Brent's point that the Fed won't step up. The Fed doesn't have a choice. The Fed will have to step up. And this is sort of what we thought going into March 2020. Uh, and this was proven when we saw the Treasury market start to crash alongside the stock market. And the Fed came in with $625 billion per week in QE, which was uh, for two months uh, a $35 trillion annual rate or about 150% of US GDP. So it was, I, I, th I think there is, I think we know they will step up with whatever they have to because they've already done so. I have a question for Lynn or, or anybody else actually. If, if we assume that the US position, kind of declines, if we had to make a steel man argument for the best 
alternative candidate for a global reserve currency over the next 10 or 15 years? What, what would that be? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. And it's the most common question. And I think what it's a lot of people, you know, we always look towards the next system as though it's going to mirror the current system. And so we've had this period for 75 years of a, of a you know, a single dominant currency. And so the, the natural question we wonder is what's going to be the next dominant currency. Uh, but actually, the, the interesting thing is, if you look in history, the previous global reserve currencies really look nothing like the, the dollar system. Uh, the UK one came came close. But really, what they were was that, you know, in many ways, gold was the, you know, the, the underpin of the system. And there were there's always one or two nations where because they were a large trading partner, a large military partner, uh, you know, their uh, currency was was more widely used and recognized uh, than the others. Uh, it wasn't a case in those past ones where, for example, all global energy pricing happened in their currency. And it didn't make it so that they all those other countries need their currency to function. And so that the lock that the United States had on the on the you know the global currency market over the past 75 years, uh, and especially since the 1970s, that that second version of the system, uh, that's kind of a, a uniquely uh, you know kind of interesting point in history. And one thing I point out in the beginning was that in the beginning of the petrodollar system, the United States was something like 35% of global GDP. We were by far the largest commodity importer. Uh, and so we, you know, we could, we were large enough to supply the world with dollars and, and kind of maintain the system. Uh, but as we move forward to a more normalized state where we have, you know, development in China, we have the rise of, you know, potentially India, all of really Southeast Asia, uh, you know, we're looking more towards a multi-currency system. And so, you know, my view is that there's there's no currency large enough, uh, including the dollar, to be the global reserve currency in the same way that the dollar was uh, for most of the last 50 years, which was as the primary currency for energy pricing. And so what we're starting to see with Russia selling oil in euros uh, and with China developing, uh, you know, their own currency to, to use for, you know, they're starting to use it around the margins for commodity purchases as well. Uh, that we're seeing a move towards multiple regional reserve currencies rather than one dominant currency. And so, you, you know, the dollar won't go from being the global reserve currency to nothing. It'll it'll be, you know, instead of the global reserve currency, it'll be a global reserve currency. And, and the euro will, you know, already is able to buy oil now, which is a, a rather recent development. And, you know, the, the yuan and maybe one or two others. And so you have these kind of three to five currencies that are recognized enough and large enough that they're able to, uh, you know, price themselves into the the oil market essentially. Uh, and in that sense, you have some neutral reserve assets. For example, we've seen, uh, you know, over the past, you know, five years or so, there's been more gold accumulation among central banks than there has been treasuries. Uh, and so, you know, you kind of shift towards different central banks hold multiple uh, reserve currencies rather than just one. They can also use gold as a neutral asset. And really, it, it comes down to what region they're in. And so, for example, you know, among the Americas, uh, the, the U.S. dollar would likely remain, uh, you know, the main currency. When you look towards Eurasia, however, you get more towards the euro or more towards the yuan. And so, I think that I think the future is a lot more decentralized in that sense, where there's there's no single country large enough, uh, you know, as a percentage of GDP, global GDP, or as a percentage of commodity import demand uh, to kind of be the, you know, the one ring to rule them all in a sense. But in terms of the assets people want to hold their wealth in or, you know, store, store of value, do, do you 
actually envision a future where people are going to want to hold euros or euro denominated debt where the interest rates are, are negative or in the case of the Chinese government, a totalitarian country that, you know, property rights are not nearly as strong as you have in the West? I think, you know, it, it's not that people hold it. It's, it's a large question of what central banks hold. And so, for example, we've seen over the past several years uh, as Russia's come under pressure from sanctions and things like that. They have largely de-dollarized, and so they've sold their treasuries, uh, and they've shifted more towards euros. Uh, so in many ways, Russia now uses uh, a combination of euro and gold as their, uh, you know, reserve assets, uh, and uh, and it makes sense for them because they sell uh, oil in euros, and then you know, Europe's a large trading partner. They also, you know, they sell uh, oil to China in euros, but they also around the margins settle in their own currencies as well, and then because they're trading partners with each other. And so, you know, in that sense, we, we've already seen, uh, you know, ever since the formation of the euro, if you look at, for example, the composition of central bank reserves, the dollar reached a peak back in 2000. And it's been on a somewhat of a gradual decline since then, where it's still the largest, but it's, it's a smaller share than it was back then because we've had the formation of the euro uh, and because we've had, you know, for example, Russia start to diversify its reserves. And even, for example, Russia and India uh, e- even though India is more on the on the side of the U.S. in many cases, uh, even they have have uh, you know uh, de-dollarized their trade with Russia uh, to some extent, for example. And so I think it's in large part a matter of you know what currencies energy is priced in, and in those countries that are accumulating those currencies, what can they use them for? And so if they can turn them into gold, they can they can recycle them back into say for example buying uh, you know equipment from China, things like that rather than storing large and large amounts of them. I think it's important too, Dan, if I can jump in on that, is just to think about what nations actually run deficits and surpluses against other nations. So you could say who's going to want to hold euros or who's going to hold yuan, but if the, 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 the prerequisite question to say who's going to hold yuan is who's running surpluses against China. And as a practical matter, if you look around the world, the only nations that are primarily running surpluses against China are uh, energy producers. So it's it's the Middle East, it's the Russians, um, and it's the uh, uh, other commodity producers. You could you could say at times the South Koreans run a surplus against the Chinese as well, and certain electrical goods. But the point is this: is if the if the if the oil exporters run a surplus against China, they end up with yuan. They now have a choice. They can either redeploy those yuan into Chinese government debt, which right now is yielding 200 basis points above U.S. government debt. But there are obviously the concerns about rule of law and and confiscation and uh, all the things that I think are very valid concerns. Or they can settle that in because China runs a current account surplus, China actually exports goods on a net basis. There's plenty of goods that China makes that would serve to be effective settlement. So Huawei 5G equipment, which might be very useful to oil uh, exporters looking to modernize their internet, et cetera, um, would be something of interest or to Lynn's point, the gold. And so when you contrast that with the U.S. system, we don't have anything on net to offer. We're running massive twin deficits. And so once upon a time, we offered protection from the Soviets, and that was a great deal until the Soviets weren't there. Now we need sort of a new, you know, a new uh, boogeyman. Um, you know, the war on terror, I guess, sort of did that, supplied some of that protection. It's arguable that you need 12 carrier battle groups to to defend some, you know, some guys with technicals and a 50 cal in the back of a pickup truck. But 
Uh, and I think that's part of what your fans don't want to pay for anymore. But this this dynamic that basically we have nothing to offer on net to settle trade with other than our financial markets. And that gets back to my prior point where we've been hawking our family silver. It's why our net international investment position is where it is, is because you price in yuan, you say, okay, well, I'll buy some Chinese goods. You price in euros, okay, I'll take some euro, you know. The, 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 there's plenty of exports you can get from Europe. Europe is a current account surplus region, particularly Northern Europe. You go to the Americans and it's like, well, financial assets, I guess, you know, I'll take stocks. I'll, I'll, I'll take, I'll take, you know, real estate. And so it's, it's a different system and it's evolving in that way. And so it's, I don't know that there's anything, what, it, when people say, well, what's the currency is going to replace the dollar? Nothing's going to replace the dollar. I think Lynn laid that out beautifully. I, I, I want to get into two topics before we head out in the next, you know, eight or so and call it a night um so one, one is to is to double click on, on china for for a second you know, and, and luke I'm, I'm thinking of you here you know the sort of strong bear bear case is that you know china is a kleptocratic autocracy massive credit bubble you know demographic challenges energy challenges and that they'll basically implode once the u.s sort of you know stop subsidizing the, the global order that's sort of the extreme bear case um, you've written about uh luke that you, you think we underestimate china or we're sort of looking them in the wrong uh, at them in the wrong lens because we're comparing them to other uh, emerging markets uh, why don't you sort of respond to the, the, the bear case and, and yeah i i think i think we have consistently not given china enough credit and i think that's i think the proof of the pudding is that as we we've had you know there are analysts have been calling for the collapse of China for 20 years and it hasn't happened. And that's not to say it can't ever happen, but I, I, I look, the rule of law things are a real issue. No question. The human rights stuff, real issue. I think they look at the world very differently um, when, as opposed uh, to how we look at it. So if you, if you look at it, even as, as, as simply as well, it's a huge bubble. Yes. However, I would say it's the second biggest bubble next to the euro dollar and the U.S. Treasury market. And so if China's choice is we have to participate in the system. So our choice is either stockpile. We sell goods to the Americans for dollars for 25 years and we get these dollars in return and we can either put them in treasuries, which the U.S. Fed and the U.S. Treasury is telling us we are going to debase. And particularly after 2008. When the U.S. faced a choice in 2008, the U.S. could have implemented austerity on itself or it could have just printed the money. And the U.S. had implemented austerity on everybody else, Southeast Asia, the Russians, the Argentinians. The U.S. and IMF always came in, always implemented as uh, austerity. Ask the South Koreans, ask the Greeks. But when the U.S. faced that choice themselves, they printed the money. And so as soon as they made that choice in particular, but I think all along, the Chinese were looking at it from a longer term perspective. Would I rather have a pile of treasury bonds that every sovereign debt in, in history has eventually defaulted? It has. If not outright, then on a real basis. So I can hold this pile of paper that is not paying me a real positive rate of interest, or I can take those dollars and I can redeploy them into cities, infrastructure, and I can overbuild the heck out of my country um, and have infrastructure that will give me a positive ROI payback. It will employ my people. It will it will build social stability. It will strengthen the Communist Party. And I think that's how they've looked at it. And and so I think they come at it from a different angle uh, than than we have come at it. And that has consistently led us to underestimate their motivations and in, in what they've done. And uh, yeah, is it a bubble? Yes. Is it as big a bubble as the euro dollar market and the Treasury market and the dollar? Absolutely not. 
in terms of the demographics, yes, but yes with an asterisk. And the reason I say that is, is on one hand, I hear, you know, I've been to conferences and I've heard people standing up on stage and say, yes, China has this demographic problem. And look, here's what their, their, their population tree looks inverted, particularly in a few years. And that's a disaster. Granted. Then the next person comes up on stage and says, in America, 35% of the people where the population is growing and younger than China are not going to have jobs in 10 years because AI is going to take their job. And so where I haven't figured out, and I don't have the answer to this yet, but I don't see anyone else raising the question, which is, is what, what is the demographic time bomb? Is it having a bunch of old people and not enough young people to, to support it? Sort of the traditional demographic time bomb, which I think is probably a time bomb. Or is it a, having a bunch of young people in a still growing population with no jobs for 35% of them and 12 guns for every 10 people like we have in the United States? And I, I don't know. I could make a case either way. I, I think if you look at strictly in economic terms, yes, China's demographic situation is far worse than ours. When you layer on the domestic political stability angle, it begins to become more of a toss-up. And two years ago, people would laugh at me when I said this. But after January 6th, after last year, after last summer, nobody's laughing anymore. Um, and so I just, that's where... I, it's not that I think China's a lot better off. I just think, you know, I think they're in a better, they may be in a better shape than the people, you know, calling for their imminent death or, or, or the imminent collapse are, are calling for. But I just don't know what I, I think when you think about technology, I think we, one of the things we need to revisit is what, what is a demographic disaster? Because like I just said, it, it, it might be a growing population with, with a lot of young people that are out of work. Nick, um, maybe let's close with, 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 with you. Uh, l let's talk about crypto dollarization. Uh, you know, assuming it, it, it happens, why don't you unpack you know, what, what that could mean for, for U.S. power? Um, you know, how does that interact with the Luke and Lens, uh, you know, sh short thesis, um, as, well as, as well as friends in the long term? Um, and, and why don't you unpack uh, what, what you find interesting there? Yeah. So it's a really interesting question because, and I'd be very, very interested to get the views of the co-panelists on here, because I wouldn't say it's something that may happen. I would say it's something that's well underway, is happening. So I actually just looked in the numbers. There's about $45 billion worth of crypto dollars out there. And so, you know, most people in this room will be familiar with that, but basically we're talking about commercial bank dollars that are being immobilized and then tokenized and effectively claims on those dollars are being inserted onto public blockchains, which makes them unencumbered and sort of freely transactable and transforms them into a quasi digital bear asset. So a, a sort of a, a digital equivalent of physical cash almost, assuming you trust the, uh, the issuers of these things, which is, you know, a really big asterisk. <laughs> I don't know if we want to get into that part necessarily, but it's really a material amount of money and it's sort of, it's custom built to um, make it difficult to enforce capital controls, for instance, because it creates a really free flow of capital. And the revealed preference of crypto users, people in the crypto industry is to use crypto dollars instead of the native tokens like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So crypto dollars do more transactional volume than cryptocurrencies themselves. So there's been a dollarization of blockchains, which is pretty fascinating. And the really big question that I've tried to I've tried to understand here is, you know, how should US policymakers see this phenomenon? Because it's rapidly 
it's growing literally exponentially if you look at the chart. And so, you know, first of all, are the risks to financial stability, but second of all, is this good for U.S. interests? On the one hand, it sort of promotes the distribution of the dollar on this sort of direct-to-consumer way. So you see the dollar, um, you know, in almost invading uh, a bunch of countries where there's high inflation, where previously dollarization would have occurred through the import of physical dollars on sort of the black market, which is sort of pretty difficult. And sometimes you don't have enough bills in the right denominations. This kind of solves that problem. So you definitely see, um, you see dollarization, sort of crypto dollarization happening gradually uh, and in an accelerating rate in places with very weak local currencies. Um, so the question is, you know, does this proliferation of dollars um, in a way that individuals can hold them without banking accounts, without access to the bank system, they can sort of self-custody them. Is that good for U.S. interests or does it disrupt the topology of the dollar system, which runs through New York with the you know major dollar clearing institutions all being based there? And does it disrupt the Treasury's ability to sort of pursue policy, policy objectives through sanctions? Uh, so I, I haven't really made up my mind on that, but I do think it's a potential wrench in the works here, or at the very least, really fascinating phenomenon, which is sort of worth paying attention to here. So very curious to hear, um, you know, the, the views of uh, Lynn, Luke, or, or Brent on this, whether this, you know, is good for the dollar or whether the U.S. would be against this, even if it does represent a proliferation of dollars globally. Well, this is Brent. Um, I, th I think the way I would answer it is that it doesn't necessarily hurt the dollar. And in many ways, it reinforces the dollar's status as the most demanded currency in the world. Um, you know, the, the U.S. dollar stable coins or, you know, these, however you want to describe what you were just talking uh, there, Nick, is, you know, and maybe I have, maybe I'm misunderstanding it. But in my mind, it, 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 it's a way to send dollars around the world and, and circumvent SWIFT or, you know, the, the banking system. But the fact is, is that, the demand is for the dollar. It's, this is just a unique way to send it around the world and transact in it. And I don't think that the U.S. would necessarily have a problem with it up and until it started competing with their own digital coin. In other words, they're happy to have the network effect, which increases the dollar's use and reinforces the dollar's the world reserve currency. If the if the Fed comes out with their own Fed coin, I, I think it would be very unlikely. And again, this isn't necessarily what I want. <laughs> You know, I would love it if we had freely competing currencies and we were able to choose which currency we thought was the best. But that's just not typically how the world works. Typically, the government wants to control the currency within their borders. Um, I would be extremely surprised if um, the government um, of really any country let uh, a stable coin and their own currency compete with their own digital central bank coin that they issue. Um, so I, th I, I, th I think it's kind of one of those things where they're happy to have it as long as it doesn't compete with them directly. But as they start to get into this game, I think it's going to get uh, very interesting, to say the least. Go ahead, Lynn. No, you can go ahead. I just I was going to say real quick, I think there's I, I agree with Brent on the point about the proliferation of dollars. Another angle, too, that I've that I've been thinking about increasingly has been a line in the book, The Raven of Zurich, written by Felix Somery. It's his memoirs from. Uh, this probably would have been in the uh, in just prior to World War One, and maybe it was prior to World War Two. But 
the point is this, which is that if you're going to go into a competition or a conflict, you want your currency as strong as possible before you do that, uh, because your currency is going to get decimated during during the conflict. Um, and I don't think in this case, I'm thinking of purely as the fiat currency, I'm thinking of the reserve asset. And so I, I think we are de facto in a competition with China. I don't think that that's uh, a, a particularly uh, controversial statement any longer. And if that's the case, we can clearly see what China and Russia have been doing to undermine the dollar reserve, the treasury, you know, the treasury is primary reserve asset, which is to buy gold. So if we wanted to compete with gold, the asset that is actually, if you look at it as a reserve asset that has been rising against gold is Bitcoin. And it should, given the, the finite nature relative to gold, so all, all the things people have laid out before. And so I've just been increasingly, and I don't, I don't, I haven't come to a conclusion on it, but I've been, it's a splinter in my brain, remembering having read this book uh, and, and Somary, who is brilliant, having said this so long ago. Is it possible that as part of this great power competition, the U.S. Is, or interests in the U.S. have woken up and said, all right, fine, Russia, China, you want to buy gold, buy gold. We're just going to let Bitcoin run away. And you can see the charts showing how many ounces of gold Bitcoin buys, and it keeps going up and up and up. And we'll just let Bitcoin run to a million, five million, ten million. We don't care. We'll, we'll let Bitcoin run. And if we wanted to, we'll buy back all your gold from you for pennies on the dollar. And we're going to win this great power competition and Bitcoin's going to help us do it because it's going to be the hardest reserve asset, which is going to make the dollar the most demanded. And it's going to rebalance, allow reshoring sort of all of the things that, 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 that I've been talking about for a long time in terms of needing a neutral reserve asset. That is it possible that, that the U S has decided to let Bitcoin serve that role. And it seems crazy, but it seems less crazy to me by the day. So I'll, I'll pause there and, and let, uh, let Lynn close it out. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, that going to Nick's point, the, the interesting thing about the proliferation of stable coins is that it certainly affects this conversation, but the, it's it's interesting because you can, either side can harness it uh, to kind of explore how it could benefit their side. Uh, and so it's one of those things where it could shake out either way, because on one hand, it does reinforce the usage of the dollar. Uh, it also, it just demonstrates the, the demand for the dollar that's out there. Uh, and that can, you know, give the United States power in terms of, uh, you know, projection, uh, but then also furthers the trip and dilemma, uh, you know, kind of a trade structural trade balance uh, that we've been referencing uh, so far. And so that that kind of continues to hold open that door and allow those mercantilist nations to benefit from it. Uh, and on the other hand, it just shows a persistent demand. But on the other hand, the interesting thing is that a lot of the debate over the past year especially between Luke and Brent has been about, you know, the, the idea of a global dollar shortage. And so, you know, we have a situation where all these countries, you know, a lot of countries have dollar denominated debts. Uh, and in many cases, you know, most cases they are not owed to the United States. They're actually owed to other countries. It's often China, it's often Europe, it's often Japan. Uh, and so we, we have all these countries with dollar dominated debts. It could be their governments, it could be their corporations. Uh, and, you know, last last check, that was something like you know $13 trillion, according to the BIS. And then, of course, there's other layers you can add on top of that, depending on exactly what you want to count. Uh, and so when we see an example where dollar-based cash flows uh, get cut off, either due to a pandemic or just due to a recession in general, you have a situation where all these countries have dollar-based debts, but then you, you have cash flow that gets cut off, and therefore you have a scramble for dollars. And that's why you generally see a dollar spike 
uh, during recessions. And that's what we saw in March. And of course, because a lot of these foreign countries have dollar-based assets, it could be treasuries and it could be other things like stocks, they're forced to sell some of their assets and basically contribute to the crashing of, of U.S. markets and other markets uh, in order to get the dollars they need. And that's why we see the Fed come in with swap lines. The interesting thing about stable coins is that it kind of democratizes all the different pathways that dollars have to get around the world. And so in some ways, it could alleviate dollar shortages uh, by giving countries that might not have otherwise had access uh, more channels to get dollars. And so it, it definitely, you know, I think it impacts both sides of the equation. You can argue that it could weaken the dollar. You can argue that it can strengthen the dollar. And then interestingly, going back to kind of Luke's point, you know, we think of a, we think of a strong currency as a good thing for a country. Uh, but of course, it comes with pros and cons, including less export competitiveness. And so it's kind of there's there's kind of a flow chart of outcomes. You can argue whether it's good or bad for the dollar, and then you can argue whether it's good or bad for the dollar if it's then good or bad for America, which is not necessarily the same thing. We we could uh, we could go go all night, but uh, we should uh, you know uh, end any good party early. Um, and so let, let's uh, let's let's wrap up here. Um, maybe as as a closing. Uh, you know, we could have our special guests go around and either say one prediction or or, or sort of a, something pithy that they didn't get to get to say, but they wanted to 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 to, to get across. Um, and, and, and Dan and Mark uh, I, I had to had to run early at the hour with, with an hour book, but they highly enjoyed our conversation. Um, so so with that, uh, can one of our special guests uh, start either their their prediction they want to leave us with or 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 sort of the last last note that they wanted to say? Sure, I'll I start. I, I think uh, consensus is still that U.S. real rates are uh, not going to get that negative, uh, that August was near the bottom at negative 1.1%, or maybe we're near the bottom now at negative 1.2%. I think U.S. real rates are going to negative 5% or negative 10% or maybe more so, and that's just the difference between the inflation rate and uh, the uh, the rate of interest on uh, on, on, on debt. And so, uh, that's a really good environment for, uh, for, for gold, Bitcoin, uh, certain types of equities, et cetera. So I'll, I'll stop there. Um, I'll just jump in and say that, uh, you know, in 25 years of doing this, the current inflation trade is the most concentrated and well-accepted thesis I've ever seen in 25 years. Everybody is all in both from a belief and positioning standpoint, that the dollar's going lower, commodities and emerging markets are going higher, and the central banks have this all under control. And I think that will be proven incorrect. And I'll just leave it at that. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed and appreciated this conversation. Well, I, I don't really have uh, educated uh, thoughts on inflation like the rest of the panelists. In fact, I study their thoughts uh, a lot. But uh, I will say that I think it's, it's likely that... Um, the uh, U.S. embraces uh, both Bitcoin um, and uh, and privately issued um, dollar, you know, digital dollars, um, and uh, chooses to underwrite uh, a fairer and more uh, neutral uh, financial system. And the U.S. realizes they have this gigantic advantage with digital currency already, and uh, and they choose not to squander it. So that's maybe an optimistic uh, predi prediction, but I, I think that's uh, a likely one. I think one of the most important things is to kind of be data dependent and, you know, kind of change as facts come in. And so, you know, I, I, I started off back in 2018, more critical of the euro, more bullish on the dollar. Uh, when we moved into 2019, I was kind of neutral on the dollar. 
you know, Luke did very good work in, in uh, 2019, kind of pointing to some of the, the mounting kind of uh, financial plumbing issues that were building. And we saw that manifest in the repo spike uh, that happened in September 2019. Um, and then in October, I turned, you know, bearish on the dollar. And that's that's a view I've had since then with some occasional kind of tactical uh, kind of cautions when we, when we become oversold. And for me, it's, you know, it's not about predicting what's going to happen in the next three to six months. It's more about knowing what signposts to look for uh, when we're having inflection points. And that could be fiscal spending, that could be tracking, you know, who who's buying treasuries and whether or not there's enough, whether or not the Fed's going to have to step in and buy more. And so I think it's about watching things evolve over time and kind of watching, you know, narrative flashpoints. And and so, for example, what we saw January 6th is one of those signposts. Um, and, you know, the, the Georgia elections, like all these different things kind of change the calculus over time uh, as far as the probability shake out for how large fiscal stimulus is going to be, who's going to buy it, what are certain, uh, you know, agreements going to be between countries. And so I think that's the key thing is, is you know, rather than latching on too much to a narrative, it's about kind of just having an idea of, of where the general trends heading, where some of the limiting factors are what some of the response functions are when things start to break, and then they kind of know what to look for and then kind of check things off as we reach those milestones. Uh, that, that wraps up our, our first ever uh, Big Ideas Clubhouse conversation. Uh, thanks to uh, co-hosts uh, uh, Catherine, um, Dan, and Mark. We'll be back here Thursday night at same time, for, or actually Thursday night, uh, 7 p.m. PST for Tyler Cowan, which will be a, a great conversation. Um, and, and thank you to our first ever guests, uh, Lynn, Nick, Brent, and Luke, for a great conversation and all the work uh, that you do helping us uh, uh, helping us get smarter and, and make some of this uh, complex stuff more accessible. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.